Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to do two whole chapters this morning. 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. When we last left our study, the Ark of the Covenant had fallen into the hands of the Philistines, which was a tragic moment for Israel. How could the one true God be captured by these pagan idol worshipers? And how could God's glory ever be recovered from such a seemingly shameful defeat? Those are the questions that must now be answered. So let's pick it up in chapter 5. Read through chapter 6 to see what that answer will be. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how these things, when they saw how these things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for His hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And He afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. 
Perhaps He will lighten His hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After He dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to Him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go, let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is He who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not His hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned to the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Amminadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. Let's pray now and ask God to... Bless us as we consider His Word. Father, thank You for the Scriptures. Thank You that You are a God who speaks. Thank You that You have revealed Yourself as the one true and living God. Give us ears now, Father, to hear from Your Word and to consider what it says to us, Your people. Remind us, Father, that this Word is for our good. Help our hearts to be soft, to receive what it is that You have spoken. Father, please keep me from error. Please give us grace, Father, that we might be discerning to know the truth that You have revealed. We pray this, Father, confident that You hear us. In the name of the Lord Jesus, Amen. <clears throat> uh, 
I've had a question nagging me all week as I prepared for this message. And the question is this. How does a church get to the point where you could say the glory has departed? If you recall from last week in chapter 4, Eli's daughter-in-law gave birth to a son. She named her son Ichabod because the glory had departed from Israel. And sadly, we noted that the same thing could be said for many churches in our day. The glory has departed. The Word of God is not honored. Unity is not pursued among the members. And holiness is not cultivated in the fear of the Lord. That's true of many churches. But how does a church get to that point? It doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual slide that occurs, that occurs over time. So where does it start? What's the mistake that kicks off the downward spiral? That's the question that's been nagging me all week. And in the Lord's kindness, I came across a quote that provided some clarity. It's from A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. Listen to what Tozer identified as the starting point for a church's slide. Quote, Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes on from there. The masses of her adherents come to believe that God is different from what He actually is. And that is heresy of the most insidious and deadly kind. Close quote. Friends, that is a very insightful statement. How does a church get to the point where the glory has departed? Quite simply, they get God wrong. And everything deteriorates from there. Is that not what we see here in 1 Samuel? How did Israel wind up in this tragic situation? They got God wrong. Their basic theology became corrupted. And that was the starting point for all of their troubles. You see, the most important question God's people must answer is also the most basic. What is God like? And that's what makes these two chapters so important. They provide the answer to that foundational question. Think of these chapters as the counterpoint to chapter 4. If if 1 Samuel 4 exposed Israel's error, then chapters 5 and 6 provide the correction. Or we could say it this way. In these chapters, God puts Himself on display. He is the main character of the passage, and His character is the main point. All of the stuff with Dagon and the tumors and the ark... All of that is meant to open our eyes afresh to the majesty of the one true God. So the best thing that I can say as we begin to study these chapters is buckle up. Buckle up. This text is a tour de force of rich, deep, soul-satisfying truth about God. God. Some of it will be challenging. Some of it may be new. Some of it will be a reminder. But all of it, friends, all of it is for our good. Specifically, I'd like to draw your attention to four truths about God from these two chapters. Four truths about God from these two 
chapters. The first is found in verses 1-5 to of chapter 5. Here we see the glory of the living God. The glory of the living God. As the chapter opens, there doesn't seem to be much glory for Israel's God. In fact, it appears quite the opposite. Notice verse 2. The Philistines have set up the ark in Dagon's temple. Understand, friends, this is more than showing off a trophy. This is a theological statement. In the ancient Near East, when you conquered a people, you took the gods of your enemies and you set them up in the temple of your God. And it was a statement of supremacy. A sign that your God was greater than the God of your enemies. That's what the Philistines are doing here. They are mocking the God of Israel. They're mocking Him. But then a string of events happens that destroys the Philistines' pride. Look again at verses 3 and 4. The ark may be captured, but the Lord is not. He engages in an all-out war with Dagon. And in three short steps, the Lord reveals His glory by decimating this so-called God. Notice with me how it unfolds. It is devastating and it is glorious. First off, the Lord humbles Dagon. Verse 3, the Philistines wake up to find Dagon lying face down before the ark. That's a position of worship, friends, and that's the point. This may be Dagon's temple, the place where he is worshipped, but here we find Dagon bowed low in submission before the Lord's ark. (laughs) What a reversal. The night before, they're partying and celebrating Dagon as the king, and the next morning, they find him face down on the ground. He's humiliated. The Lord is not finished. He then exposes Dagon's helplessness. My favorite verse in the whole two chapters is verse 3 at the end. It's just a brief statement, but it speaks so loudly. What do the Philistines do when they find Dagon on the floor? Look at verse 3. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. You're supposed to laugh. Some God this is! He can't even pick himself up off the floor. He's entirely dependent upon his people. Friends, this is true of every false god you will ever encounter, be it Dagon or Allah or money or sex or power or fame. They're all needy, pathetic imposters. They can't help or save anyone. They can't even help themselves. They're dependent on you. Still, God is not finished. For the final step, the Lord conquers Dagon. Look what happens in verse 4. The Philistines wake up. They find Dagon lying face down again. But now his head and his hands are cut off. Friends, there should be no doubt as to what is happening. This is a sign of conquest. Dagon's head is cut off to symbolize his destruction. This is what you did to opposing kings. You cut off their head and you put it outside your capital. Dagon's head cut off. He's destroyed. And his hands are cut off to picture his inability to protect himself. Or His people. You see, the Philistines have it all wrong. It's not the Lord who has been defeated. It's Dagon. This is no God. This is a statue. A piece of stone. The people carved for themselves. So once again, we have a clear reminder of how God works. He has taken what appeared to be His defeat and used it to display His glory. Sounds like the cross, doesn't it? where it appears that God is defeated, but it's where He displays His glory. And and notice, brothers and sisters, how God has done this. Completely on His own. This is the primary takeaway, the one thing we must not miss. 
There are no Israelite soldiers in Dagon's temple fighting for the Lord's honor. There are no Levitical priests present to protect God from defilement. No, the Lord fights for Himself. You see, this is where Israel has gone astray. Not only did they think they could control God, but they also mistakenly believed that He needed them. You can imagine their thought process as they got ready for that battle with the Philistines. Surely, God won't let us lose, because then who would defend His honor? He needs us to protect His glory. But this moment in Dagon's temple shatters their misconception. God fights for Himself. He has no needs. He is entirely self-sufficient. Brothers and sisters, we too should learn from this moment. If we're not careful, Israel's error can creep into the church as well. We can begin to think that God needs us. It's sad to me how much of what passes for evangelical theology these days makes God sound quite beggarly. Almost pitiful even. Listen to how mainstream Christianity talks about God And you'll hear what I mean. Folks are most concerned with making God relatable or approachable, which is not a bad thing per se, but in the process, they end up making God sound like a heavenly grandfather. He's permissive and never pushy. And what He wants most of all is for us to simply pay attention to Him so that He doesn't get lonely. Friends, that idea of God has no basis in the Bible. God has no needs. And that includes us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. To be sure, God calls us to serve Him. And He uses us to advance His purposes. But we must never mistake our calling for necessity. God has no needs. He is entirely self-sufficient. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying at this point. Don't mistake God's self-sufficiency for indifference. I'm not saying He's indifferent to us. In fact, the truth that God has no needs should actually make the Gospel sweeter to sinners like us. Think, Think about it. If God doesn't need us, then why did He choose us, call us, save us, and now use us? Why? Ephesians 2.4 But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That's why. Not because God needs anything, but because He is merciful. Because He is gracious. Because God loves His children. Friends, do you see the fruit of this doctrine? This is called the doctrine of God's aseity. Or His self-sufficiency. Do you see the fruit of it? Grace is more amazing when you see that God doesn't need you. Ministry is more satisfying when you recognize that God is simply sharing with you the joy of seeing His Gospel spread. This is why our doctrine of God matters. A big God makes for a sweet Gospel. So, brothers and sisters, let's learn from Israel at this point. Let's learn from them. He does not need us, but He does love us. Here in Dagon's temple, the Lord displays His glory as the living God, and that truth should cause us to rejoice 
all the more that we know Him through Christ. Well, as we continue on in the chapters, we find the Lord is not finished with the Philistines. After humiliating Dagon, the Lord moves on to Dagon's people who live in Dagon's territory. And in this, we see our second truth. The wrath of the righteous God. The wrath of the righteous God. Some cultural background is helpful at this point. In the ancient Near East, deities were connected to a particular people and more specifically to a particular territory. So at the borders of territories, there would be statues set up of the gods to let you know which deity ruled over that area. So the Philistines were tied to Dagon and their country was supposedly the location of his power. But the God of Israel is about to demolish that Idea. Notice the emphasis on geography in verses 6 through 12. The plague moves from Ashdod to Gath and finally to Ekron. Everywhere the Philistines take the ark, affliction follows. It's inescapable. And that's the point. They cannot outrun the Lord. The whole earth belongs to Israel's God. Wherever the Philistines go, the Lord will find them. So do you see how thorough the Lord's victory is here? Dagon himself, Dagon's people, Dagon's territory, they all belong to the Lord. He alone is God. But even still, we must admit that what happens here is a little strange. Right? I mean, tumors. We find out later there's mice somehow. It's probably better to say rats spreading the tumors. It's a little strange. We're not given any explanation as to what these tumors were or how they spread, but evidently it was terrifying. So what are we to make of this? Well, the key is found in verse 6. Notice how the verse begins. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Now, what happened to Dagon's hands in verse 4? They got cut off. What do we find about the hand of the Lord, though? It is alive and is powerful. In fact, each time the ark reaches a new city, there's a repeated emphasis on God's hand. Look again at the text. In Ashdod, verse 7, His hand is hard against us. In Gath, verse 9, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And in Ekron, verse 11, the hand of God was very heavy there. So for all the questions we might have about the tumors and how it worked, this much is clear. This is God's doing. He's the one afflicting the Philistines. Listen, I know our modern world cringes at such an idea, but this affliction is a sign of God's wrath. God's wrath is His active, personal, righteous opposition to all that is sinful and unholy. Active, personal, righteous opposition to all that is sinful and unholy. That's God's wrath. The Philistines have defied, defamed, and dishonored God. So in His righteousness, the Lord displays His wrath against their sin. In that sense, what happens to the Philistines is a picture of what all sin deserves. Punishment. Punishment. All sin is against God. And therefore, all sin deserves the Lord's holy, righteous wrath. 
Now at this point, someone is going to object to me and say, yes, Jeff, but this is an Old Testament passage. Once we get to the New Testament, we don't really find this idea of God's wrath as much. There's one problem with that objection. The actual text of the New Testament. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ephesians 2.3 We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Colossians 3.5 and 6 Put to death what Whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Revelation 19.15, from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So let's be done with the idea that wrath is somehow an Old Testament idea. No, friends, this is a biblical truth that is central to who God is. When we see this affliction of the Philistines, we see a demonstration of God's holy, righteous wrath. So how should we respond? It's very clear that God's wrath is a reality. So what are you going to do? How should you respond? Well, maybe surprisingly, the Philistines give us some insight. The Philistines. Notice what happens at the beginning of chapter 6. The Philistines finally decide to send the ark back to Israel, but not before their priests provide some counsel. Look at verse 3. The priests insist on a guilt offering. Five golden images representing their tumors, as well as golden images of the rats that were apparently spreading the affliction. Again, it's all very strange to us. But the point is clear enough. They believe the offering will appease Israel's God and take away their affliction. Now, obviously, these pagan priests are wrong in the form of their offering. God cannot be appeased with golden images and His wrath cannot be satisfied through human effort. But, there is a sliver of truth here. Divine wrath cannot be ignored. It must be satisfied. It must be atoned for. Even in their ignorance, the Philistines show us humanity's greatest need. It is our need for atonement. Our need for atonement. So, just speak very plainly, friends. It's foolish to read passages like this and debate whether it was right for God to act in this way. God's wrath is a reality to be reckoned with, not an idea to be debated. Instead, we should be asking ourselves, what can satisfy God's wrath against my sin? And the Bible's answer is only the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, this strange text about the Philistines and their tumors actually leads us to the Gospel. 
Brothers and sisters, this is why we must hold firmly to the doctrine of God's wrath. Because it is essential for the Bible's good news. Yes, you heard me correctly. The wrath of God has everything to do with why the Gospel is good news. Too often, we reduce the Gospel to a sappy message of God's willingness to give us a better life than the one we deserve. But friends, at the heart of the biblical Gospel is not a better life for us, but a cross. And on that cross, the Son of God died. Every time you hear somebody say the Son of God died on the cross, you should ask yourself why. It's the most profound moment in all of human history. It is staggering beyond belief. Why would the Son of God die on such a shameful cross? To satisfy the holy, righteous wrath of God. That's the biblical gospel. The good news is that God took the initiative to meet our greatest need. Our need for atonement. So in the feeble, foolish attempt of the Philistines to atone for their own sin, we see ourselves. We need a Savior. But we also know God must provide Him. For we have no hope on our own. Maybe you're here this morning and you find all of this talk about God's wrath to be weird at best or downright intolerant at worst. Or maybe you have a number of objections as to whether or not it was right for God to do such a thing. If so, friend, I would love to talk with you about your questions. But I would also encourage you to consider this all-important question. What are you trusting in to deal with God's wrath against your sin? As we've seen here from God's Word. Don't don't take my word for it. I don't have anything to say but what this says. As we've seen from God's Word, the Lord's wrath against sin is not a theory, but a reality. So by all means, discuss your objections with someone. I would encourage you to do that. But at the end of the day, don't neglect this most important question of all. Are you trusting in Christ to satisfy God's wrath against your sin? He's the only hope for sinners like us. Well, as the text keeps going, you'll notice there's still a bit more to God's dealings with the Philistines. They've decided on their offering, but now they need a plan for how to transport the ark back to Israel. And it's here that we find our third truth. The revelation of the merciful God. The revelation of the merciful God. The Philistines can't simply walk the ark back into Israel. That would be too shameful for them, not to mention probably start another war. So again, the priests have a plan. The priests have a plan. Actually, it's more like a test. They want to know for sure that it was Israel's God who afflicted them. You can see the details in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 6. The plan calls for a cart to be yoked to two cows that have recently given birth to calves. These are not the kind of animals you would normally use to pull such a heavy load. And the only, thing, only reason I know that is because I read it in a book. I'm not a farmer. I don't know that on my own. I just read it in a book. You don't use these kind of cows to pull a cart. What's more, to make it even more difficult, the cows are to be separated from their calves. So every natural instinct is working against these cows. They don't know how to pull this kind of cart and they want to be with their young. 
And that's the point of the test. It goes against nature. It's unnatural. If the cows head for Israel, then the Philistines will know it was the Lord who afflicted them. Okay, well then notice what happens in verse 12. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. So, to paraphrase, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. Without any hesitation, these untrained cows went straight toward Israel. It was uphill too, by the way. And they don't even swerve or meander off course. It's just one highway, straight as an arrow, all the way to Beth Shamish. And then, most important of all, the Philistines see it happen. Look at verses 12 and 16. Twice, the text emphasizes how they watched this unfold. They saw it. So, catch what this means then for the Philistines. This is a moment of revelation. In a sense, God has spoken to the Philistines. Granted, it's through cows and not through His law or through His prophets, but He still revealed to him, to them a piece of His truth. And He did so in a way that could, they could understand. I mean, consider the Lord's mercy at this point. The Almighty God humbles Himself to the level of these pagans. He agrees to go along with their plan. He didn't have to cause the cows to go against nature and head for Israel. He could have left the Philistines in the dark, but He didn't. He didn't. The Lord revealed Himself so that they would know He was the one who had brought the affliction on their land. And therefore, we can say, the Philistines should turn from their wickedness and cast themselves on the mercy of this God. Well, this moment of revelation to the Philistines should be a reminder to us, friends, of how God works in this world. He has not left humanity in the dark. Or to put it another way, God has given humanity enough truth to respond to Him. To be sure, His grace is still necessary, but He's given us enough truth. Even the person who never sees the light of the Gospel receives the testimony of creation. Remember that all-important verse from Romans chapter 1, which by the way, if you haven't read Romans 1 lately, That's really helpful for understanding what's happening in our world. Romans 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them. How? Because God has shown it to them. Where? In the creation. And this is why God's wrath that we just spoke of a moment ago is always just. Humanity has received enough of God's truth to make us accountable before God. On the last day, no one will be able to plead ignorance before God. Not a resident of Ashdod or Gath. Not a lost tribesman in the jungle. Not even a well-meaning, upstanding citizen of the United States. There are no excuses. God has mercifully made Himself known. Which means the question facing each and every person is simple and serious. What will you do with the revelation you have received. What will you do? Will you suppress it like the Philistines? Or will you listen and repent in faith?
So we come to verse 13 of chapter 6. And you notice the story shifts back to Israel. Without any advance notice, the ark simply rolls into the town of Beth Shemesh. Imagine being one of those Israelites in verse 13. They apparently aren't all that concerned about the ark because they're not looking forward or expecting it. One moment, they're just out working in the field, and then the next moment, here comes the Ark of the Covenant over the hill, down into your town. What an exhilarating moment, but also somewhat frightening. And it's here that we find our fourth and final truth, the peril of the Holy God. The peril of the Holy God. Several things happen in this final section. The people offer a sacrifice to the Lord. They set up a stone as a witness to what God has done. And the ark eventually gets to Kiriath-Jerim where it will stay until the day King David brings it up to Jerusalem. All of those things are important and we could make a few comments on them. But what I want us to focus on is verse 19. Verse 19. It's the most significant feature of the final scene. Notice again what happens. And he, being the Lord, the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Now what's that about? I understand why he's striking down Philistines. They're pagans. Why is he striking down Israelites? Shouldn't this be a moment of celebration? But now it becomes a moment of grief. Why? Why? Well, you've got to go back into Israel's history to get the answer. In the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 4, there were clear instructions given for transporting the ark. And part of those instructions involved wrapping it in some cloth so that people couldn't look at it. In fact, there was a whole class of priests that were responsible to wrap it so that the other priests couldn't see it. You can't even look at it. But the men in Beth Shemesh do not follow those instructions. And what makes it worse is that they have some priests there. They have some Levites there who knew how to handle the ark. And still, they treat it lightly. And that's the problem. These men have a very casual view of the Lord and of His holiness. A very casual view. Their attitude before God is not marked by reverence, but by flippancy. It's just no big deal. Here's the ark. Let's look at it. And for that reason, the Lord strikes them down. Friends, there's a correction. Maybe it would be better to say a warning here for us as well. God certainly wants His people to be near to Him. God's desire is most definitely for relationship with His children and a relationship that is, that is marked by warmth and affection. Those things are certainly true. Praise God. But, we must never confuse those things with familiarity or casualness. At all times, God remains the Holy One. He remains the God who dwells in unapproachable light. And His presence should be approached with joy, yes, but also with trembling and with reverence. One of the greatest indictments of evangelical theology today is that it's so light and trivial. 
We approach Him with joy, yes, but also with trembling and with reverence. That's a hard tension to maintain, isn't it? How can you be both joyful and trembling at the same time? Those don't seem to go together. Well, verse 20 gives us some insight, I think. Notice how the people of Beth Shemesh respond. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall He go up away from us? That response is a mixture of both right and wrong. They are right to recognize that they cannot stand before God on their own. That's right. But they are wrong to then get rid of Him. They're wrong to get rid of His presence. You see, not only have these men forgotten how to treat the ark, they have also forgotten what else God revealed in His law. The provision of a mediator who would stand between them and the holy God. It's really quite sad. The Lord had given them clear instructions on how to deal with their sin. He had told them mercifully and graciously what to do to be able to stand in His presence. He had given them His Word. And in this moment, they forget that provision. Instead of casting themselves on the mercy of God, they choose to run from Him. Or to say it the worst way of all, they act like Philistines. Friends, I think Israel's error teaches us how to maintain the tension of joy and reverence in God's presence. Yes, God is the Holy One whose presence creates a sense of trembling, but we do not come before Him on our own. We come before Him through the work of a mediator. A mediator whom God Himself has given to us. The Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we approach the holy God as we ought. In Christ, the tension of joy and reverence and trembling is resolved. We rejoice to call God Father through the adoption we've received in Christ, and we tremble to know that the cost of our adoption was the blood of God's own Son. You see, it's in the light of the Gospel that we come to God as we ought. Not flippantly, but reverently. Not terrified, but joyful. Joyful. So as we close, I do want to plead with you to focus your mind and your heart on the Gospel of Christ here at the end. We've considered many challenging truths this morning. But I pray that in the midst of all these considerations, we've also seen how each of God's attributes leads us on to the good news of Christ crucified. God's glory, His wrath, His revelation, and His holiness, all of those are essential for rightly answering the question, what is God like? But all of those are also understood most clearly only in the light of the cross. So let's live there. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the grace of knowing You through the Lord Jesus. We praise You as the only true God. We praise You, Father, as the God who is infinitely wrathful against sin. It is right for You to hate sin. We praise You, Father, that You are merciful and that You reveal Yourself. We praise You, Father, that You have made a provision for us to come and stand before You, the Holy God. And because we are covered in Christ's blood, Father, we come with reverence, but with joy. 
knowing that Christ has made a way. He has dealt with our sin. He has satisfied your wrath against us. Praise be to God. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.